Hello, welcome to BioBased Radio, a podcast promoting a more sustainable future through conversations with industry, university, and environmentalists. Today, our host, Denny Hall, is talking alternative aviation fuels with Steve Zonka, Executive Director for CAFI, the Commercial Aviation Alternative Fuels Initiative. They'll talk about the future of aviation, current use of alternative fuels, and how most travelers have already flown on a plane utilizing alternative fuels. Great to have with us today, uh, Steve Zonka. Who, Steve, what's your title? Is it executive director? Is it chief czar? Executive director of CAFI, the Commercial Aviation Alternative Fuels Initiative. And, and sometimes, uh, yeah, chief cook and bottle washer, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a huge staff there, right? <laughs> not, not too bad. We only actually have uh, three uh, full-time people working for CAFI, and, and uh, most of the rest of our work gets done from work in kind from our sponsors. Okay, well, so far I've done a terrible job of setting up this conversation. We've just jumped right in, but let me get, let me back up a second and say sure. that today's episode of Bio-Based Radio is focused on uh, aviation, jet fuel. And uh, I know for places, you know, a big place like the Ohio State University, uh, it's estimated that we, through air travel, generate over 50,000 metric tons of CO2 equivalent, carbon dioxide equivalent, through air travel, uh, which amounts to 8% of our total carbon footprint here at the Ohio State University. And, you know, you've got aviation organizations, uh, airlines that are trying to lessen that carbon footprint. And to help them do that, is Steve Zonka, Executive Director of uh, Commercial Aviation Alternative Fuels Initiative. Steve, why don't you uh, introduce yourself, tell a little bit about your background. How is it you came to become the Executive Director of this important organization? Well, thanks, Denny, and thanks for having me, actually. Um, uh, I've been working in this role for six years. I've been in the aviation industry uh, my whole life, 33 years of professional experience, and yeah, I did come at this route in a rather circuitous way. My uh, educational background is uh, BS in aerospace engineering, and then I followed that with a master's at the University of Cincinnati uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, my primary role was with uh, GE Aviation, and uh, as pretty much a hardcore technologist working in uh, advanced technology operation and and looking at uh, future aircraft engine and aircraft configurations and um, how we would create value propositions and those kinds of things. Uh, I took a little bit of a, um, of a leave, leave from GE for five years and went and worked at American Airlines in Dallas uh, in uh, operations development and fleet planning and sort of got an additional uh, customer perspective on looking forward with respect to selecting uh, aircraft and engine equipment and how those would be operated, et cetera. Uh, GE enticed me to come back and I came back again into uh, roles of uh, advanced marketing 
and advanced engineering again and kept on getting pulled into this nexus of discussing advanced technology uh, and the nexus of that with respect to market uh, issues, environment, cost, uh, pricing of air travel in general, and a whole range of issues like that. And with my performance background, I also started getting pulled into uh, IKO CAPE activities. And most people don't recognize, but international aviation is governed through a UN body called ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization. And there's an entity within ICAO called CAPE, uh, the Committee on Aviation Environmental Protection. And that group uh, works uh, on an international basis to establish standards for the environmental impact of aviation. So it was a combination of my, my background with advanced technology, uh, working in the CAPE process, master's degree work in, in chemical kinetics of combustion and a few other things that, that got me more and more immersed in working on the policy side of, uh, of aviation. And I started working with CAFI in 2008, uh, right after their formation as a representative of GE Aviation. And after a couple of years of that, uh, the previous executive director decided to semi-retire in 2012, and uh, they reached out to me. And uh, it's quite a fascinating field to be involved with. It did take me a bit to uh, make the decision to leave GE again, uh, but here I am six years later. Talk a little bit about future of aviation. There's some pretty crazy stuff out there in terms of possibilities knowing that all of them need some form of energy. But uh, what about the shape of the plane? You got any thoughts on where that's going? I obviously have worked on a pretty wide range of uh, applications for propulsion, including supersonics and and hybrid vehicles and uh, lighter than air vehicles. So I, it's, you know, as a technologist, my my standard answer to this question is, a technology breakthrough can take us anywhere in a hurry if it's uh, if it's of significance, and we've had some examples of that in the past. Uh, but on the commercial aviation front, this is a pretty finely honed uh, industry uh, in terms of what works and what doesn't. And so it's hard to envision the commercial aviation enterprise as a whole moving in dramatically uh, different regions in terms of technology adoption, et cetera. I think an incremental approach is very valid for the space, but you know, dramatic leaps forward with new technologies are tough. And bolstering that comment, if you look at just the introduction of uh, composite structure technology that Boeing introduced on the 787 uh, a few years ago, and the difficulties that they had in just adopting that one line of new materials into the overall you know, aircraft program represents the challenge of trying to introduce technology on a wholesale basis. So having said all that, do I think uh, we might see really unique configurations of aircraft going forward? Yeah, I think we might. I think that those are not going to come around in the time frame that people think about. Uh, with respect to the the options that you threw on the table, you know, we had a, a, a world uh, circumnavigation with a solar-powered airplane. Uh, but what people don't r- realize necessarily is that that plane cruised at about uh, 30-some knots. 
And uh, on any given day, uh, aircraft aloft can encounter winds uh, from 30 to 150 knots. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing to think about commercial travel when you uh, have to wait for no, no wind or a tailwind. So, you know, clearly there was a great demonstration program. I actually had some involvement with that in the early days. Um, but it's not, it's, it's truly not viable for commercial aviation. So you move away from a solar scenario where you, you know, you can't get the level of energy input that you need to some other concepts like electric aircraft, hybrid aircraft, et cetera. Those things are obviously being worked on now. There's a lot of progress being made on uh, electrified aircraft in the very small space, personal aircraft. And I think that that's how that technology will continue to come into the industry. But if you look at the energy requirements, even for a very advanced, let's say a, a, an airplane that you might envision 20 years from now that has extreme advances in aerodynamics and structure, the amount of energy that you need on board to consider electric aircraft, we're still an order and a half of magnitude off in technology in terms of energy density and some other criteria. So we're going to continue to be using jet fuel and things that look like the propulsion systems that we know today for quite a while. Um, I think the first realistic step for a commercial aircraft will be a hybrid uh, engine concept, which will be turbo machinery, uh, potentially driving an electrical source. And then that electric, that generator is providing uh, power to uh, electric motors that are distributed on the aircraft and, you know, fashion is a little bit different than today. But I often jokingly make uh, make lunch bets during some of my presentations with anybody who wants to take them up that uh, we won't see that air, that kind of aircraft in true commercial service uh, before 2050. Okay, so if you want to go, if you want to travel by air in some direction other than the way the wind's blowing, <laughs> you need some sort of uh, transportation fuel to do it. And, and yep. right now it's pretty much liquid. Yep. And so we've been, why don't you describe the jet fuel of today? What's the, what's the makeup of aviation fuel that we're using currently? You know, not the alternative stuff yet. Sure, sure. So uh, jet fuel is um, derived from petroleum primarily uh, around the world. Just to set the stage, uh, aviation as an international enterprise uses something under uh, 90 billion gallons a year. Uh, in the U.S. this year, we're going to be approaching about 24.7 billion gallons, and that's for all usage, for commercial business aviation and the military. That's the amount of fuel, basically, that's burned uh, originating in the U.S., comes from a standard refinery. Uh, it's often referred to as a middle distillate fuel. So its hydrocarbon composition causes it to come out of the distillation tower uh, between the segments that come out for diesel and those that come out for gasoline. Um, and what that means in, in more chemical nomenclature is jet fuel is a family of pure hydrocarbons with the carbon number ranging between C7 and about C17. And in that Gaussian distribution, we also have uh, several families of molecule types, paraffins, iso and normal paraffins, cycloparaffins, and aromatic content. 
And the combined mixture of all of those chemical elements gives us a liquid that gives us all the performance attributes um, that we need and around which the aviation enterprise has matured. So it's a very safe, highly efficient fuel source for, uh, you know, generating thrust through turbo machinery for, uh, for these aircraft. It gives us really low freeze points so that the uh, fuel doesn't freeze at high altitude where the temperature can, you know, regularly drop to minus 70 or 80 Fahrenheit. It has low flash points so that we don't have problems handling it in the airport environment good thermal stability, that it doesn't coke up inside the engine, and a whole list of attributes. So it's a very good fuel, uh, very energy dense. It's hard to find an actual uh, a substitute fuel that, that gives us all the properties that we know and love out of uh, petroleum-based jet fuel, other than the, uh, the carbon contribution from the fuel. Where do you stand at the present on alternative aviation fuels? Yeah, so that's really what CAFI is all about, is uh, trying to find uh, low-carbon solutions uh, to replace petroleum-based jet fuel. And our fundamental approach is simply to replicate that same set of molecules that I talked about using or, or synthetically. Let me just lump it into a category of synthetic production of, of those molecules from sources other than petroleum. And... The good news is, is that we actually know how to do that pretty well. It's a lot of standard chemistry and uh, hydrocarbon chemistry of getting from one hydrocarbon source to another. And we know how to do that fairly readily. Uh, the challenge that we have is finding the feedstocks from which we do that. You know, these basic hydrocarbon compounds that nature hands us in some fashion and, um, you know, producing it at a reasonable price point. The, the yeah. volumes that you need, just getting to anywhere close to, to those kinds of numbers. Uh, right. I mean, if you're trying to do something other than 1% or something. For sure. And so, you know, all I would offer there is that we, we have been working behind the scenes on a, an approach to technically enable these fuels to be produced and and to be acceptable to the aviation industry and so we've had good success with that we have five uh, different approaches uh, approved today by the overall aviation industry and there are more on the way and yeah you're right denny i i guess the other the other way i look at it is if we achieve the sustainability that we want to at a reasonable price point the rest will come because the industry the industry is actually calling for the development and usage of these fuels. This is not a scenario where there's a lot of controversy over the use of a renewable or on an alternative jet fuel like there are in some other uh, transport modes. Uh, for instance, uh, consternation around the use of ethanol as a gasoline blending agent or the use of biodiesel as a diesel blending agent. Uh, where the biodiesel has uh, some attributes with it that are not uh, not attractive to the end user. We've solved all those issues. The industry wants it. If we get it at, at the right price point, I think the pool from the industry will help stand up the production and get us to the point of you know significant penetration of these fuels. Who owns CAFI at this point? Who's your member? Right. So uh, we were formed 12 years ago as the inter industry was doing some introspection into um, 
how we were looking at the future energy sources. And uh, there was a decision at the time made to, to take a focused look at alternatives. And a proposal was made for a group of partners to get together and uh, foster this effort. And that's exactly what happened. So we have four core sponsors. That's the FAA, Airlines for America, which is the industry association that represents all the commercial carriers or most of the commercial carriers in North America. The Aerospace Industries Association, which are all of the folks that make, sorry, it's an industry association that represents all the folks that make aircraft and engine equipment. And Airports Council International, the, you know, the place where we uh, operate aircraft. So those four institutions are the physical sponsors of CAFI. And then uh, in terms of uh, CAFI getting, getting actual work done, we have uh, four fundamental work teams that we've defined and had in operation for several years. And those include research and development, fuel certification and qualification, environment and sustainability, and a business team. And uh, those uh, four teams are executing a bunch of different programs. And then uh, we reach out to other government sponsors through public-private partnerships to define work programs whereby different kinds of work can get done. And then finally, we have uh, about, right now we're sitting at right around 1,300, I think, CAFI members uh, from around the world. These are people that follow our work or participate in our work. And uh, they come from a uh, pretty broad range of backgrounds, including uh, aircraft, engine, and subsystem equipment manufacturers, I think I count about 55 U.S. specific U.S. government offices, about 67 universities at present, 35 distinct fuel users, which would be airlines and military entities, business aviation entities, about 54 different fuel producers and technology providers are collaborating with us. And we have about 73 foreign representatives from about five continents right now. So a pretty broad range of constituents who are all working together to achieve this uh, goal that the industry has set for itself. That is an amazing list. Uh, I'm just, it's so robust in terms of the participation that you've got in this program. And it really does underscore the, the importance the industry is placing in this space. And there have been some some fairly uh, interesting flights with some examples of some airlines that have uh, flown some bio-based or some alternative fuels. Can you talk a little bit about some some of the successes that you've had? Yeah, or sure. demonstrations, well, I guess, maybe more than successes? Yeah. Well, I, I think by um, IATA's counting and IATA's International Air Transport Association, who represents commercial airlines around the world, they do keep uh, some level of track of, of uh, actual flights that have occurred. And it's been a bit since I checked on that, but I think we're over 150,000 uh, actual flights that had some level of uh, alternative jet fuel blended into the tank. Um, and there's been, that's, this has been going on for, I don't know, seven eight years now since we did the first uh, flight demos. 
you know, initially it was done really from a, a approving perspective, uh, trying to raise the visibility of the work that we were doing. Now it's much more being done on a, on a, you know, a rote basis. So most people don't recognize it, but anybody who has flown through Los Angeles International Airport, LAX, in the last almost three years, since about March of 2016, um, they've had some level of alternative jet fuel on board. And that fuel came from a refinery that sits just to the east of the airport uh, that's today owned by uh, World Energy. That plant was previously owned by a company called Alt Air. And so they've been producing fuel on a continuous basis since uh, March of 2016. Today, there are only two producers in the world who, who are producing on a continuous basis, and that's that World Energy facility in Paramount, California, and uh, the Neste uh, fuel facility in Porvo, Finland. Um, so all of the things that you see in the news about, you know, this airline doing a demonstration flight or a particular airline flying from one point to another, all of that fuel is coming from uh, those two facilities at present. And the thing that's keeping us uh, busy at the moment are trying to help quite a few other ent entities stand up production here over the next couple of years to really try to start moving the needle on uh, the amount of fuel that's available for the enterprise. With regard to World Energy, what's, what is their feedstock? Uh, World Energy primarily uses tallow uh, on a regular basis. They have done some demonstration batch production using oil from purpose-grown oil seeds, carinata, camelina, and a few other things. But the, the way that, that that production capacity or that production methodology was defined it allows for the hydroprocessing of any free fatty acid or fatty acid ester, which in layman's terms is basically fats, oils, and greases. So this is everything from a purpose-grown oil seed to uh, waste streams like uh, yellow grease, which is used cooking oil, or brown grease, which might be recovered from a water treatment facility to waste animal fats. We have a lot of, in the U.S., uh, chicken, pork, and, and uh, beef production that generates a significant amount of waste fats, uh, all the way up to things like uh, distillers' corn oil that comes out of the process by which uh, biodiesel is made and uh, protein is developed for cattle and chicken feed. So it's a whole range of feedstocks, and... Um, we're looking, we're continuously working on uh, developing additional feedstocks because we, we recognize the waste streams are not necessarily growing in time the way that we would like fuel production to grow in time. So we're working collaboratively with the USDA and other commercial partners on purpose-grown crops, including brassica family of plants, uh, nut trees like uh, pongamia and um, a whole host of other things that are that are being developed around the world. I think a guiding guiding concept in this, whether it's this production pathway that Nesty and and World Energy are pursuing with fats, oils, and greases, or one of the other ones where we're looking at lignocellulose or sugars, etc., 
the aviation industry knows that for this activity to be successful, we have to be able to produce fuels around the world. And there's really no such thing as a ubiquitous feedstock around the world. So we're looking for processes that allow us to use a broad range of feedstocks in those families of fats, oils, and greases, sugars, lignocellulosics, and industrial waste streams to be able to produce jet fuel in any corner of the globe. I think it's Exxon that has a, the commercial that talks a lot about algae. Are, are you hearing, are, are you seeing any activities working with algae? So at oils? Not so much going directly into the fuel space. I think what we found out over the last decade or more of research is that although the, the yield per acre with algae algae is extremely high versus a lot of the other approaches that we've looked at. Um, so from a productivity and availability perspective, the story is great. The challenge is getting to the oil to allow us to convert it into fuels. And that process is rather difficult, timely, and costly. And, and that all comes from uh, the fact that these the, the algal uh, entity lives in water at a you know fairly low density, so you have to uh, centrifuge the water, uh, then you know more or less completely dewater the algal cell, and then extract the oil from it. And all of that stuff is very expensive versus something like uh, rapeseed, as an example, an, uh, an oil that we use for industrial purposes today. That's a very straightforward approach. And, at a, and we can get it at a much lower cost than algae. So that's the challenge with algae. Again, as a technologist, I recognize that with the advent of certain technologies, we could bring that cost down significantly. And so there are, the good news is there are still some uh, major believers in the potential of algae, and they continue to fund research in that area. But in terms of its near-term applicability for fuel, it's rather low as opposed to going into a higher value usage like for nutraceuticals and some other you know, pretty unique applications. Sure. There is one entity that we're working with right now. IHI is an industrial conglomerate out of Japan, and they are working with a very unique algal species that instead of producing a fatty acid, it produces a very long chain direct hydrocarbon. It has some unique attributes to it. And so we're just about to get some of that fuel uh, entering into the ASTM evaluation process. Um, so I you know, only raise that to say we're, we are doing some things in the algal space, but it's not a, a mainstream activity uh, by any stretch at present. Yeah. So t talk about the technologies then that are under consideration for converting, say, wood waste or other lignocellulosic materials into a potential fuel? Sure. So we have uh, two pathways already approved that, that fit into that space. Uh, one is the direct usage of lignocellulose and uh, basically taking it through a gasification system to produce syngas and then taking that syngas and running it through a Fischer-Tropsch reactor. And uh, I'll refer to that as FT technology. That technology was developed by the Germans uh, during the World War II. 
and it was subsequently used by South Africa to produce fuel during the apartheid years. And so it's a it's a very straightforward approach. I call it the uh, brute force and awkwardness approach. <laughs> you basically put the stuff into a gasifier. Uh, you cook it for a bit. You get the syngas off. You get some ash uh, residuals that come off the process. You clean it a bit and, and convert it to hydrocarbon molecules. You know, the one potential challenge with that approach is we take these structures that nature gives us in the lignocellulose. You know, some of the, if you look at the molecular level, this uh, composite structure that already includes these hydrocarbons that if we could capture them more directly, it would help out in the production cost. So the FT process actually doesn't do that. It's like, that's why I call it the brute force and awkwardness approach, because we're basically breaking all of that uh, hydrocarbon structure down to the basics, hydrogen and carbon monoxide. So we are destroying things that nature gives us to, to perhaps more directly work with. But that can potentially be done fairly cheaply. So it, it is a, a, a pathway of interest. A second approach that we also have approved goes to the other end of the spectrum. And that is you can take lignocellulose and you can hydrolyze it and basically pull out the C5s and C6 sugars that exist in that plant material naturally, and then just focus on the conversion of those sugars to pure hydrocarbons. Uh, and there are some pathways to do that in terms of using alcohol as an intermediary or using a, an engineered microbe to convert those sugars directly to hydrocarbons. So it's kind of two ends of the spectrum of what we've defined for usage of lignocellulose. And I think from a technologist perspective, people look and say, well, there's probably some other opportunities in that space to figure out how to use some, something that nature gives us. And there are some people that are working on those processes right now. So these would be some catalytic deconstruction methodologies where you don't you know, go clear down to hydrogen and carbon. Now you capture some level of the intermediate and then convert it over to, you know, these C7, the C17 hydrocarbons. So Shell, for instance, uh, right now is uh, collaborating with their wholly owned uh, subsidiary who works on catalysts, a company called CRI, and they license a technology from developed by the Gas Turbine uh, Institute in Chicago and um, they have branded that process as IH Square. It's an integrated hydro processing uh, concept. And we're just about to get the first slug of that fuel also for ASTM testing. And that's coming from a demonstration facility that they uh, have placed in India and where they've been doing some development work over the last couple of years. I do expect to see that pathway approved probably in the next year and a half or so. And that would represent another approach towards uh, utilizing lignocellulose uh, in, in perhaps a more efficient way than, than what we have defined today. About industrial waste. Talk about that as a feedstock that, and what are some ways in which we're looking at using those? Yeah, exactly. One very unique one. And, and you, Denny, I know you understand that in my role, um, I try to treat all technologies on a level playing field. But I, you know, refer to the work that's being done around the use of solid municipal waste rather fondly because uh, if we perfect that, that 
approach commercially, it solves a lot of other environmental issues that we've created for ourselves here in the U.S. by the way that we dispose of municipal solid waste in landfills. So this is a process whereby um, most of the uh, lignocellulosic content that exists in, in the waste that you throw away. So wood residues of various kinds, all of the paper products, uh, a lot of plastics that can't be recycled. Um, those materials are actually sorted out of the municipal solid waste, and then they are uh, processed in a couple ways. And so that Fisher-Tropes technology that I mentioned a minute ago, that's the approach that a company called Fulcrum is using, and uh, they will be generating jet fuel and, and, and diesel fuel out of solid municipal waste, hopefully here in, in less than two years at their first facility outside of Reno, Nevada. That's a clear case where you can take a waste stream and, and turn, it into, turn it into something valuable. Uh, the thing that really helps out there is that in most cases, um, the feedstock, the municipal solid waste actually comes with a negative cost. So somebody is paying Fulcrum to take this waste from them and, you know, utilizing this waste stream in ways that has, haven't been done before. So that's one example. Um, there are people that are working in uh, manure management, in uh, sanitary waste from human management. These feedstock streams that are basically 24-7 feedstock streams, right? They're anywhere where you have a human population and we're growing and consuming food, we're creating these waste streams. And then on the pure industrial side, um, and I think that's maybe where you were going, Denny, uh, there's a company called Lonzatech that is using gas waste streams coming off of the aluminum industry, the uh, ferro alloy industry, and the petroleum industry, and recovering this uh, syngas waste streams. And they're using a microbial uh, conversion to take that carbon monoxide and hydrogen and CO2 and converting that using a bug in a continuous production process into hydrocarbons. And then those hydrocarbons are finished in a, in a kind of a, a standard refinery process uh, to produce uh, jet fuel. The intermediate with, with that process is the, and sorry to backtrack, but the, the microbe is actually producing a, an alcohol of some type. And then Lonsatech is working with other customers to then take that alcohol using standard thermochemistry technologies and turn the alcohols into higher order hydrocarbons. So we actually are very hopeful to see a, um, uh, a facility being built in Sopperton, Georgia. Um, they've already done some demonstration work there, but uh, Lonsatech's intention is to open up a, an ethanol to jet fuel facility in Sopperton using ethanol derived from industrial gas waste streams. So there are, that, those are two examples of different waste streams that are being utilized in the industry. And there are actually several more. And as I said before, the primary driver here is taking a hydrocarbon stream that is a waste to one entity and turning it into a valued product um, through a biochemical or thermochemical uh, production mechanism to create significant value. We uh, recently had a group of students visiting a bioeconomy conference, 
And as the students, as we were wrapping up this conference, we asked the students kind of what they got from the session. And one of the students remarked how hopeful, how, how optimistic she was and how impressed she was to learn about all of these many technologies and all these uh, individuals that are doing this kind of work. And, and I, I have to hope, I have to think that the listeners of uh, this podcast are, are, are feeling equally hopeful. Now, you know, again, it's one thing to be looking at landfills and thinking about the volumes that are in a landfill and, yeah. and put that in the context of what you said earlier in terms of the volumes of jet fuel that we need. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that we've got enough waste to power all of our planes. Right. So not necessarily in solid municipal waste. Uh, we don't. Um, but that's the thing is the industry is working on a very broad range of technologies and feedstocks because we know that it is going to be this, um, you know, this, this patchwork quilt of opportunities. So clearly from a waste perspective, it's like, man, I want to see every drop of waste that's not recyclable or used for some other purposes, uh, turned into jet fuel. I mean, why wouldn't I want to do that? If you've ever lived near or around a landfill, you appreciate the fact that it's it's not a, a very pleasant place to be. And it's not just from the smell and the pests issues, but, you know, there are Superfund sites associated with leaching from landfills um, and a lot of other attributes, the methane leakage, et cetera, from older landfills that don't have re- recovery gas systems on them. And, you know, that methane is much worse for from a global warming p- potential than CO2 is. So, man, I'm, you know, I'm the first first person in line to say, you know, as quickly as we can, let's utilize every last drop of MSW that's possible. But you're right. It doesn't give us everything that we need. And so that's why we are working on these other scenarios, the use of lignocellulose. So that's basically trees. Uh, tree residues or forestry residues that come from commercial thinning of plantations, the the slash and uh, waste from uh, timber production uh, processes, and then a whole range of energy type grasses. Um, and there's a really really broad range of those things. Uh, another good example is uh, sugarcane. After sugarcane is crushed and the sugar is removed, you're left with these massive, uh, massive tonnage of bagasse from that process. And today, a lot of that bagasse is uh, mass burned for uh, power production on site. That's rather an inefficient process. And so there's another opportunity, a significant level of production of, of a waste stream that could be converted into higher value products. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'm looking at it holistically. As I said, Denny, it's these four families of feedstocks that we're looking at. Uh, lipids, lignocellulose in general, sugars, and industrial waste streams. And, and I do believe at the end of the day, when this is a fully mature industry, we actually will see fuels coming from each of those feedstocks via multiple conversion processes. So you've created these novel fuels. You know, you don't want to be in an airplane that all of a sudden the fuel doesn't work. 
Right. So what's involved in making sure that this fuel will provide the performance necessary? Right. So that's a, that's a great question. And, and I recognize that that, you know, could be top of mind for some people who are hearing about this for the first time. And the good news is, is that we've done a huge amount of work there and established an entire new process within the ASTM community to ensure that the synthetic fuel components that we're producing actually are delivering all of the attributes that the aviation enterprise needs. Um, so that's sort of the, the positive aspect of that. The negative aspect of that is that's can be, that can be a lengthy and costly process for a new producer who comes along who, you know, is not bankrolled very well and they're not operating off of their own balance sheet yet, still operating off of angel investment and that kind of thing. So we have had some people spend three to four years in that process. And that's, uh, it's, it's a well-defined process that we work collaboratively with the FAA and a lot of other participants on that starts off just by looking at fundamental properties, ensuring that all of the properties of the jet fuel specification are met, and then uh, testing in, in components and rigs and engine uh, on engines on test cells, and then finally in aircraft and flight. We know enough after working on this for 12 years that we don't have to engage in all of those activities. We don't have to force every manufacturer to produce enough fuel to go through a flight test. Um, and we're continuing to improve that process. And, and in fact, this year we've established what we refer to as a clearinghouse, working with the University of Dayton on a, a pretty well-defined uh, funded program to allow these fuels to come into the system for the aviation industry's evaluation and not have to take three years and cost multi-million dollars. We force these entities to disclose to us their manufacturing processes and ensure that there are conversion process elements that are in there that only give us the characteristics that we want and that no contaminants are bleeding through and all of those things. The good news out of all of that is, in most cases, these synthetic fuels are actually of higher quality than the fuels we get from existing petroleum refineries now, in terms of energy density, lower freeze point, no sulfur, um, a lot of other improved attributes. And so these fuels can actually wind up being superior and in, and in many cases, they are, and we've proven that. So not to say that we'll get value for it being a better fuel, uh, but there are some other attributes that will come along for the ride. For instance, our tailpipe emissions with these fuels will absolutely be lower. We'll generate a lower level of particulate matter, uh, lower levels of carbon monoxide, underburned hydrocarbons, and no sulfur oxides. None of these fuels that come from these biological processes will wind up having any sulfur in them. And we still have a significant amount of sulfur in our petroleum-derived fuels. So uh, we'll see a report come out in a couple weeks from the industry about the uh, implications of improved air quality at airports from the use of these fuels. They're, they're just superior in, in some regards. For our listeners, what is the... How does the price of jet fuel compare to, say, gasoline or diesel fuel? 
is it comparable? Do they tend to move together? Or is jet fuel kind of a different ballgame? No, they uh, they definitely do move together. Uh, in fact, this was an exercise that we just did recently as we were talking with some commercialization partners. You can go back over the last 20 years and look at the wholesale price of jet and diesel. Um, over that 20-year period, the, the, the cost of those two products, I shouldn't say that, the price of those products as sold on the wholesale market have varied over that time period by only two cents per gallon. And they have crossed over one another in that time frame several times. So very close on the production price. With gasoline, it's a little bit different animal. But in general, those the products all really track with the price of oil. So, I mean, you can't, can't argue that much. That's one of the things that we are trying to overcome is um, any incremental difference in production cost. And then the fundamentals of wholesale pricing, and then also dealing with some policy elements that create non-level playing fields between jet fuel and diesel fuel, like tax structure and those kinds of things, as well as uh, some environmental regulation. And I don't know if you're going to move in the direction of talking about RFS and LCFS, but because most of the country has been focused on decarbonizing ground transportation, there's been a focus on gasoline and diesel that hasn't been there on jet fuel in the past. And we're starting to turn that around to keep there from being a, uh, an isolated focus on diesel and not having any focus on jet fuel when the products really are so similar. I talked about that at the start. What you can find today out of a refiner is, um, in fact, one entity is actually doing this. They're producing some amount of jet fuel, renewable jet fuel today. But in order to not have to deal with logistics, segregation, incremental investments in their capital or, or in their plant and equipment, they take that jet fuel and they just put it back into the diesel pool. So the diesel and the jet fuel hydrocarbon distributions overlap one another and or jet can go into the diesel pool, but it doesn't work the other way. We can't take diesel and put it directly into the jet pool in significant quantities because we run into freeze point and viscosity issues. Would you, you know, repeat for our listeners, the, the issue that we've talked about in terms of dead trees and how we might be able to utilize them? Yeah, and I think dead trees is sort of the tip of the iceberg there with respect to some other concepts. But yeah, um, there's a, a project that the USDA is funding in in five western states. The project is actually centered out of uh, Colorado State University, a project called Banner. And they are looking at the potential usage of approximately 10 million acres worth of standing dead timber in five uh, Rocky Mountain states where the timber has been killed over the last several years by a uh, pine bark beetle. And, you know, the, this timber will stand for a significant period of time. It's a huge uh, fire, wildfire source. The timber will only stand for a certain period of time before it, it collapses and creates additional problems for, you know, feeding fires at the ground level. And so there are, that whole project is associated with looking at, can I get access to this timber in a viable way 
without creating other ecological issues and, and harvest it and allow it to be used for something like fuel production. It's probably not good for timber production any longer because you start getting some degradation of the timber or the paper industry or other standard industries, but it, it still can make really good fuel. And uh, as Danny and I were talking, uh, we have the same issue in our neck of the woods here in the Ohio region with the emerald ash borer problem has uh, devastated our uh, ash tree production. And in, in down in Southwest Ohio and in Indiana, where I'm located at, it's about every fourth or fifth tree is an ash tree. And um, so just, again, same kind of concept, millions of acres of standing dead wood that could be taken into this, into this sector of uh, lignocellulosic conversion to higher value products. And so we continue to, to do things to help us move in that direction. There's some other scenarios too, um, Denny and I didn't talk about, but very interesting project also going on through USDA sponsorship with a, a shrub called Waiuli. Um, Waiuli is a natural rubber producer and Bridgestone and a couple other companies are looking at it for synthetic Synthetic's a bad terminology, a different source of natural rubber other than the, the rubber that comes from Southeast Asia. And uh, so they bring that, they, that this is a bush uh, that they cut off about every one and a half to two and a half years, uh, a couple inches off the ground. The bush regrows. Uh, they bring the cutoff bush into a facility. They chop it up. Uh, process it through various means and they extract both a rubber and a resin and what they're left over with left with is a pretty large amount of finely processed bone dry lignocellulose which oh by the way would work really well going into a fuel production facility so we're looking at that as an example there are some invasive species in the west that are really causing problems pinion and pinion pine and juniper and there are some folks looking at the ability to go in and restore significant tracts of rangeland and, again, use that uh, lignocellulose as a, as a bioenergy source. So lots of opportunities for those kinds of, kinds of applications. We've gone for quite a while. We've gone a lot longer than what a normal podcast will go. <laughs> and uh, it's because we've had such great information Steve, uh, you've, you've really laid out the story for, you know, bio-based uh, jet fuel. And, and it's, 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 been, it's been, I don't know whether I'd characterize it as tense, but intense, but it's, it's been uh, very informative. I, I don't know if I have to give Brad Collins credit for this or whether this is on your website, but I feel compelled to say that the sky is no longer the limit for bio-based innovation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, we talk about that too. That might have been Brad's uh, own concoction, but um, yeah, it's we. I, I feel like you know we we have invested twelve years of work here, and don't get me wrong, none of the listeners should think that this is a slam dunk. We have a lot more work to do. It is extremely, extremely difficult to compete with oil at fifty dollars a barrel. I think we actually just dropped back under fifty dollars a barrel this week. Um, that's tough. When we get back in the $70 barrel, $80, $90 range, a lot of these uh, processes make sense. At 50, it's tough. And at present, uh, we're taking advantage of, of policy elements 
where states and regions recognize that we may need to be doing some things differently with respect to carbon emissions. And uh, so where that's the case and we get policy support, these fuels will move forward and it won't just be in the U.S. I think we've really gotten a jump on the technology development here in the U.S. But if policy support in some other countries is advanced uh, from the U.S., we may see these technologies actually migrate to other countries and see uh, the preponderance of production in some other areas. So, you know, places like Europe and even more so in the Scandinavian countries, they take this issue seriously. They're even now talking about mandates for certain levels of renewables being brought into the aviation pool. So I say all that to say, uh, I think we're on our way. We, we use a lot of uh, aviation euphemisms when we, when we talk about what we're doing here in terms of taxing, takeoff, uh, sky's the limit, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I, I do really feel like we're on the verge of, of seeing uh, production stand up. We know we have several entities who have, have actually broken ground. We've had five or six major announcements in the last 60 days around major commercial entities, including the, ma the major fuel producers, standing up additional renewable diesel production. And any process that produces renewable diesel can also produce renewable jet fuel. So from that perspective, I'm pretty bullish, but we'll see. We'll continue to work all the nuts and bolts, uh, additional technology development, additional feedstock work, and do a lot of things to, to try to put all the things in place to allow entities to come in with the right technology, the right leadership teams, uh, the right investment capacity, and, and really try to make a go of this. Well, assuming that people are going to want to still move from one place to another fairly quickly, and until teleportation comes along and we can just scan ourselves to the other side of the world, it sounds to me like we're going to need some liquid transportation fuels. Absolutely. And, uh, aviation is going to be one of those. And so appreciate your work, Steve, and, and the work of all your members to help us with uh, creating that path forward for a more renewable jet airplane ride. Thanks, Denny. I appreciate that. And uh, we're always looking for uh, volunteers who want to work in this space and get involved. And so if you're of a mind, uh, let, reach out and let us know. Uh, but yeah, thanks for uh, highlighting our effort to uh, your broader community and uh, look forward to uh, continued collaborations with uh, The Ohio State University and, and OBIC and, and whatever form that might take going forward. Thank you for listening to BioBased Radio thank you to our guest, Steve Zonka, for being on the show today. BioBased Radio is a production of the Bioproducts Innovation Center at The Ohio State University. Produced in association with the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture. BioBased Radio is hosted by Denny Hall and produced and edited by Casey Needham and Brad Collins. If you'd like to help our podcast grow, plant a seed with a friend and rate and review on Apple Podcasts.